Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 17, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked Him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that He was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would bless the reading of Your Word and please send Your Spirit to help us understand And to help us catch just a glimpse of the glory of our King. Lord, even if we must be sheltered in the cleft of the rock and we can only see His backward parts, allow us to see just a little bit of Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. By way of introduction, I want to sort of lay out again for us two separate parts of Matthew's Gospel and the division that we we seen, seen just a few months ago. You'll remember that when we studied verse 21 of chapter 16, we took note of the, the very beginning where Matthew says, from that time Jesus began to show His disciples, etc., etc., We made note of that introduction and then we looked back to chapter 4. And we saw that as Jesus began His earthly ministry primarily of preaching and teaching, performing signs and miracles, we saw that same phrase, from that time. And so we see a a distinction here in His gospel. There at the beginning, Jesus began His earthly ministry and that has been our focus the Sermon on the Mount, the the miracles of of 
of healing, the miraculous feedings of large numbers of people, some of the disputes between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, and some of the volleying back and forth between His ministry to Jewish people and His ministry to Gentile people. We've, we've looked at that primarily. And then we come to chapter 16 and verse 21. And we, we noted that it is here where the gospel narrative shifts. And as our gaze begins to widen and we're able to bring into view the horizon of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see the cross of Calvary comes into focus. It's here where, we, where, where Jesus and we... And Matthew, as he writes, begins to focus or look intently at the cross. Everything is now focused on Jesus and His his via dolorosa, so to speak, His way of suffering, His way to the cross. Now immediately before Jesus began His earthly ministry in chapter 4, you'll remember He went into the wilderness where He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and He was tempted by Satan And right before he went into the wilderness, what happened? He was baptized. And as he came up out of the water, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and rests on him, and God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that sort of acted as an encouragement as Jesus goes in to face what at that point was one of the... the, the primary uh, focuses of His suffering early in His ministry. So as Jesus looks to the cross, at this point, we would expect nothing less than that the Father would come and give another word of affirmation, a word of encouragement. As He looks towards a suffering that would be far worse than 40 days of fasting and temptation, and Jesus receives that word here in the transfiguration, a word of encouragement and affirmation. Now you'll also remember that last week, in trying to tie all this together in the the storyline of the gospel, last week Jesus ended by by saying, and we sort of summarized the, the point with this, He does not expect His disciples to simply deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him and fold their hands and simply wait until the coming judgment, but He actually promises that there would be some who in their lifetime would be able to see the outward manifestation of His glorious power and His reign. And they would be motivated by that to continue following Him, to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him. And they receive that motivation here in the story of the transfiguration. Then we come to us. If you watch the news at all within the past several months, and even, even going back a few years now, we see almost nothing but terrorism, of political unrest, of racial tension, of foreign governments are even more so silencing evangelists of the gospel in our own nation, the government and and just the people are trying to gag the mouth of the church as we call our country to repentance. And as we see all that, you might need a reminder of who it is that we're following. So you may need a little motivation to spur you on to continue following Christ, especially as it gets worse and worse and worse. 
when it becomes not just a privilege to gather with the people of God, but it becomes something that costs us. And so my prayer is that you will receive that motivation in the story of the transfiguration. So I want to open it up. We're going to look at all, all 13 of these verses under four headings. And, and uh, I won't list them all right now because they're, they're sort of long. But we'll begin by looking at the transfiguration itself in verses 1 and 2. The transfiguration itself. We read, After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John His brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them and His face shone like the sun and His clothes became white as light. Now as we come upon this scene I want us to really pay attention to these details because just like any narrative story, the way that we are able to understand it best is to try to try to imagine what it would have been like. Rather than just reading black ink on white paper, let's try to really picture the scene because it is a vision. It is something they saw. And so let's imagine everything that they experienced. First, we see the witnesses to the transfiguration. Jesus led Peter, James, and John up onto a high mountain. Peter, James, and John are often referred to as Jesus' inner circle. He had the twelve disciples, and then he had Peter and James and John who were sort of the closest of the disciples. These three would also be taken with him into the Garden of Gethsemane, into the deeper part where he prayed before his crucifixion. Luke tells us in his account of the transfiguration that they went to pray. That was the purpose. And so we have these three witnesses. Then notice the location of the transfiguration. He says he led them up a high mountain. Now, commentators go all over the place trying to figure out where this mountain is. It's not really important. They went up on a mountain. But we... I think it is helpful to understand or at least consider a biblical theology of mountains. It was on top of a mountain that Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac and the angel of the Lord stopped his hand. It was on top of Mount Sinai where Moses saw God and received the law from God. When you read in the Old Testament scriptures of the idolatry and the pagan worship that took place, it was often referred to as the things that happened on the high places, the mountains. Jesus' most famous sermon was called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would eventually be crucified on a mountain. He would also go up on top of a mountain before He made His ascension. Mountains were, at the very least, connected with some sort of Worship, And when we look at the people of God and in a biblical sense, it was usually connected with the special actions or meetings with God. So being led up on a mountain, if we've read our Bibles and we see they're going up on a mountain, we should immediately begin to expect something special, something abnormal, something supernatural even. So he takes these three men, they go up onto a high mountain, and it says in verse 2, and he was transfigured. Literally, he was metamorphosed. His, his form changed. Now commentators disagree on whether this was a change in his essential nature, based on the, the, the term uh, 
morph, or if it was just an outward change. But when we read the description of the transfiguration, it seems to apply that the, the primary change, the primary morphing that took place was in relation to his outward features. He changed outwardly. Notice it says, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. Luke says the appearance of his face was altered. Jesus' face emitted light so bright that it was compared to the sun. It was like the sun. His face became a source of light as if it were a bulb or a lamp. Now, I think it was last week I told Kyle that nobody has even made any comments about our new light bulbs that we've got installed here in the church. But you can see them. And if you look at them, you won't look very long because you can't look at lights very long. This here says his face shined like the sun. Would it be easier to go outside and stare at the sun than these light bulbs here? No. So Jesus' face radiates with light in such a way that more than likely the disciples would have had to turn away, to look away, because it was so bright emitting from his face. It also says that his clothes became white. So this is the second part of the the transfiguring or the morphing. His clothing, his face shined. Matthew says his clothes became white as light. Mark says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And Luke says his raiment became dazzling white. You just imagine the gospel writers trying to somehow describe the scene as his face puts forth light and his outward appearance is all of a sudden changed. His face lights up, his clothes, which were more than likely not all white. When I know when we oftentimes see pictures of Jesus, he's always wearing white clothes. More than likely, his outfit wasn't all white. But in a moment, his clothing becomes so white, whiter than any white they'd ever seen, whiter than any white than any, any launderer could wash them. When I was trying to picture this, I imagined that feeling when you walk outside in the wintertime after a nighttime snow and the sky is clear and the sun is shining and there's snow on the ground, the the brightness, the illumination of the snow as it reflects the sun is almost painful. You don't have to look at anything directly. Just having your eyes open in general hurts. You have to look away. You have to, to squint. This is how Jesus' clothing appeared. In the transfiguration, His face shines, His clothes become white like light. So what's happening here? And I want to try to break this up and and look at, as we unpack the the actual narrative, just sort of pull out as we go what seems to be happening. Well, we have a mountaintop experience with witnesses. And that's not anything new to the biblical story. We go back to Exodus chapter 24, and I think it's very important that we, we notice the relation. Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 and 10, we see that, It says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So it's not unusual for someone 
with some special witnesses to go up on a mountain and have a vision in the book of Exodus, they saw God. We also see Jesus' face shining, His clothes turning white. Again, listen to how the vision on Mount Sinai is described. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, that is Yahweh, was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Another passage of Scripture when Ezekiel describes the glory of the Lord. Listen to this. And this is very... It's a lot to take in as these authors try to describe what they're seeing when there are no human words to describe it. Ezekiel says, And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human in appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Again, Yahweh. And He says, When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now notice that these Old Testament references are references specifically to Yahweh, the glory of Yahweh and the revelation of His divine glory. And yet here in the New Testament, in a crucial moment in Jesus' ministry, not only for Himself, but also for His disciples, we see Jesus, a man in His early 30s, all of a sudden, during a time of prayer, Luke tells us that He was praying when this took place, He's transfigured before the eyes of His disciples in such a way that if we're honest, all we could say was, it looked like the glory of the great I Am on top of the mountain. Now if that's not clear enough, listen to how John would later describe what he saw when he, he, he calls the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now we have to stop there. That's as far as I can take you because our words fail us in attempting to describe the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't understand it. And unless the Holy Spirit comes and impresses this upon us, we can't see it. Our imaginations fail us 
as we attempt to picture this majesty while at the same time guarding against creating a graven image in our mind. So pray that God will brand this truth on your soul. And if you are, as you read these passages, as you hear them, if you are impressed in your soul, if it grips you, if it makes you tremble, then stop and pray and say, God, don't ever let me forget this moment when I was able to behold the glory of Christ. Because when we behold the glory of our King, we're standing on holy ground and it doesn't happen all the time. It's not not a state that you just live in. There will be moments as you study and as you read God's Word and as you really seek out the truth of Scripture, God, the Holy Spirit, will impress upon you the majesty of the King and in those moments, don't forget it. Pray and say, God, don't let me forget this. And so that's as far as I can take you. And I wish as I was preparing and getting ready to preach, I wish that I could go further, but I can't. I can take us about a third away up the mountain, and then I have to stop and let the Holy Spirit take over. And so that's the transfiguration itself. Then secondly, I want us to look at the purpose of the transfiguration with regard to Christ. The purpose of the transfiguration with regard to Christ. Look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, we've already read a little bit about that scene at Mount Sinai. I do believe Moses is very important, and understanding and comparing Mount Sinai to the Mount of Transfiguration is is crucial to seeing what's happening here. But now we actually see that great mediator of the Sinaitic Covenant appearing there on the mountain with Jesus. And again, there's a connection. Moses was the great recipient and giver and mediator of the law. That law which distinguished the people of God from every other nation on the earth was very often referred to as the law of Moses. In Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is describing the seat on which the, uh, the judicial leaders would sit, He says they sit on Moses' seat. That is, they take the law of Moses and they use it in their judiciary system. You see, Moses represents the law and the judiciary system in Jesus' day. As we read, Moses represents the law. And we also have Elijah. Embodied in Elijah was that great spirit of the men that we call the prophets. I've said it many times and I hope we can understand this. The prophets were not just future tellers. The prophets were men who took the law of God in one hand and they pointed out the sin of the people in the other and they called them to repentance. They said, here's the error of your ways. And based on the law that God gave Moses that came complete with blessings and curses, the prophets would say, if you keep living this way, the curses are going to come. But if you will repent, the blessings will come. That's what the prophets would do. Elijah represents the prophets. And so we have Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with him. What are they talking about? In Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, it says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
So we have here Moses and Elijah, representative of the law and the prophets, and they come to speak to Jesus about His departure, literally His exodus. Again, the, the, the tie-in with, with Moses and the original exodus is uncanny, but they are talking to Him about His departure. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, they come together and they are talking to Jesus about His Departure. Now, what else do we know about, especially the New Testament, when the Jewish writer would make reference to the law and the prophets together? What were they talking about? They're talking about their scriptures, the law and the prophets. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus made a reference to what we call the golden rule. And He says, on this, or in this, is the law and the prophets. When He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, well, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. When we see that phraseology used together, we are being pointed to what we call the Old Testament Scriptures. The Jews would refer to them as the Law and the Prophets, or the Law and the Prophets and the Writings, or the Book of Moses and the Prophets, and so on. They had many different ways that they would refer to these these Scriptures. So we have... Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, which represents the totality of the Old Covenant, Old Testament Scriptures. And they come and they are testifying to Jesus about His exodus. Now remember back in verse 21, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Remember what that word must means. When that word is used, it means it's already been determined. The plan is already laid out and settled. We must now conform to the plan. And Peter didn't like it, and Jesus had to enforce it. And here we have the law and the prophets coming together to testify to the death and the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. What we're seeing is a a vivid picture of what we have come to call a covenantal view of of the Bible, the law and the prophets, and the entirety of our Old Testament scriptures come together with our New Testament scriptures to confirm the atoning death, the ministry of Jesus. All of scripture is, is of this one great theme. There's no competition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When we, when we think about obedience to God, we don't say, well, that was in the Old Testament just because it's in the first half of our Bibles. We must discern and pull out and and apply the Old Testament, just like we do the New Testament. It all comes together as the total revelation of God's redemptive purposes in Christ. Moses himself said this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, The Lord your God will raise up from among you a prophet like me, from your brothers. It is to Him you shall listen. Notice that. It is to Him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, 
when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses, the first prophet, tells them there's going to come another. But as God remembers that day when he spoke and you said, don't let him speak to us anymore or we'll die, God said they were right in saying that if I continue to speak in all of my glory and all of my power, they will die But there's going to come one who will speak the same word who will come from among you, who you'll be able to to listen to and to hear. And so we see here in Matthew chapter 17 that same God who came down on Mount Sinai, only here His majesty is cloaked in humanity. Now why why is it important at this point in the gospel narrative? Why would it come at this special moment of prayer? Now, I believe like some that perhaps Jesus might have been praying for something just like this to take place. We know that Jesus was apprehensive about going to the cross. He prayed in John 12, 27, Now is my heart troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it's for this very reason that I've come into the world. He was troubled. In Matthew chapter 26, he says, My soul is sorrowful unto death. And when he prayed to his father, he said, If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way, I don't want it. Jesus, in his humanity, was sorrowful unto death as he set his face toward the cross. So who, of all people, at this point in his ministry, needs to have a word of confirmation and affirmation from the Father? Who needs to hear, it's okay. This is what we planned. Who needs to hear, look, you're doing everything right, just keep going. Who needs to hear, listen, it's about to get really difficult, but stay the course The victory is yours. It's Jesus. And here he gets another reminder of the perfect will of the Father. Just like at his baptism, he receives it on the Mount of Transfiguration. The law and the prophets come together to testify to him that his ministry of reconciliation, the plan to go to Jerusalem, is right. Everything is right on course, just like it's always been planned from the foundation of the world. And so the purpose with regard to Christ is to give Him the confirmation and affirmation that He needs. And just as an aside, that is difficult for us to understand. Jesus being fully God and fully human, fully man, how could He need to be encouraged? It's because He's fully man. Well, we say, but but He's fully God, so how does He need it? Yeah, but He's fully man. So He needs that. Number three... We see the design of the transfiguration with regard to the disciples. We read in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice 
from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. God the Father speaks of the Son in third person, speaking to the disciples. This is what they needed in the transfiguration. Jesus took up with Him three disciples, His inner circle. Now what was the purpose of them being there other than to simply verify the the account, to corroborate their story? I believe again, just like with Jesus, this serves to bolster their faith. Now Peter speaks up, and by this time we should not be surprised that Peter is the first one to talk. He says, it is good. One of the other gospel writers says he didn't know what he was talking about. They had been asleep. He wakes up and he just starts speaking. But he at least knows this is good. It's good for us to be here right now. Now more than likely, Peter thought, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. The the kingdom has come. This is the consummation. God is about to restore Israel. So... Let's hang out. We're going to be here for a while probably, so I'll make some tents. And and he desires that Moses and Elijah stay. What first century Jew would not want to spend a little time with Moses and Elijah and Jesus as they talk? So he says that. But then it says, As he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A cloud of light came around them and engulfed The whole scene. Following that same theme, Jesus' face lit up. His clothes became white like snow. And then a bright cloud comes around. And a voice speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. A voice out of the cloud speaking the same Word of of confirmation that was made at his baptism, only this time he adds an additional imperative. Listen to him. Now what had they just been told six days prior? Jesus had told them, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised, and you're going to suffer, but if you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you can be my disciples and, and your soul will be saved. But He also told them they would have a chance to see the outward manifestation of His power. But six days have gone by. No doubt, even in that moment, there were some doubts. Six days have passed. Probably more doubting. If Jesus Himself was timid enough to, as He contemplated His sufferings and death, then surely these disciples were wondering, is this really the path that I want to take? Is this really the Messiah that we've been waiting for? I mean, remember, they've got all of these presuppositions, all of this history built up that says the Messiah will be this, and the Messiah will do this, and the kingdom will be this. Jesus comes and says, I'm going to die and you have to die. And so a voice speaks from the cloud and says, listen to Him. Now whose voice was this? We can surmise based on their reaction. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. Adam and Eve ran. The Israelites, who began up close to the mountain, so close that they had to build a barrier, the Israelites stood afar off. 
Manoah said, We shall surely die. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. The men who were with Daniel trembled and ran and hid themselves in fear, and Daniel himself fell on his face. All of these in responses to whom? It's to God. God speaks, and they are terrified. Notice they did not laugh. They did not become drunk in the Spirit. They didn't get all giddy and excited. They were afraid. And this is always the response when God's presence is displayed. When God, quote, shows up, people are afraid. So this is God speaking. So again, pulling out some some things here. We have a cloud and a voice, the same picture we always see when God's glory descends. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, describing the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Describing God. At Mount Sinai, the mountain was wrapped in smoke and God's voice thundered from amidst the cloud. At the end of the book of Exodus, the cloud of God's glory comes down and fills the tabernacle. It's clear that we have another visitation from God the Father coming down on this mountain as He had done before in His glory with a cloud speaking His approval over His Son. So we have a cloud and a voice. And the voice says, listen to Him. We have the law and the prophets testifying to His ministry and God says, listen to Him. Now again, imagine the scene from the perspective of the men who were there. Imagine Matthew's Jewish audience reading this. Jesus, on top of the mountain, glows with a glory that could only be described as the glory of Yahweh. Remember, now you might say, well, Moses' face shined. Moses' face shined because he had been with God, and it it, it faded. Jesus' face shined not because he was around anybody, but because he is God. Moses and Elijah come and they testify to his ministry. God speaks from heaven in the presence of Moses and Elijah. Listen to him. Listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. Yes, there is the law. Yes, there are the prophets. Yes, there are the sacred scriptures. Now, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Because it's all summed up in him. He's the point. He's the goal. He's the fulfillment. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the supreme revelation of all that God had ever been doing or would do from the foundation of the world. He's here. Now listen to Him. Do what He says. Or we could also say with the author to the Hebrews, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. And notice, again, thinking with a Jewish mindset, when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Peter probably wanted so badly to hang out on the mountain with Elijah and Moses, but when he opened his eyes, Jesus only. And I wonder if he was disappointed in that moment. If he felt like he was shortchanged. They showed up and we heard them talking and 
Then the cloud came, and then they disappeared, and that was it. All of this great show of glory, all of this power, and then they open their eyes, and it's just Jesus. Is that enough for you? Jesus only, is that enough? All of life's blessings, all of life's gifts, all of the things that God has bestowed on us in this life, would you be okay if we said, we're going to close our eyes, and when we open them, it's just Jesus only? Is that enough? Is that your hope in death? We, we all picture laying in a bed with our loved ones gathered around us, friends and family speaking kind words over us. Would we be okay? Is that our hope in death to just close our eyes and open them to Jesus only? Because if you're a believer, that's what you'll get. And that needs to be enough. So what's God's design in this for the sake of His disciples? Specifically these three Jewish men raised on the Scriptures expecting the coming Messiah to fulfill the Scriptures. He says, here's Jesus. Here He is. Jesus only. He settles and confirms whatever doubts and fears they would have had. Or, or, or I should say, the goal is to settle and confirm their doubts and fears. This is revelation from God Himself that Jesus is the Christ. This is My Son. And that if you will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him, it will only bring blessing. Just do what He says. Then fourthly, we see the vindication of the transfiguration. Beginning in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now we've seen this many times before. We're used to this. There is a plan. It's already been mapped out. There's a goal. Jesus must suffer and He must die. And so nothing can happen that would hinder that plan. Imagine if they came and ran down and told everybody, He's here. They've already tried to forcefully take Him and make Him king. Of course, the plan would have been thwarted, so to speak, if we can say such things reverently. So He tells them to keep it quiet. Keep it silent until after His passion. After His sufferings, on the testimony of three witnesses, what is, which is what is required to confirm an accusation, the event would be and could be established by these three men. We were all three there. We all three saw it. And so it happened. But keep it quiet until then. But then we see questions about Old Testament prophecy and Christ's Messiahship. In verse 10, the disciples asked Him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? See, He's just confirmed His Messiahship again. They have seen practically undeniable evidence. They've heard the voice from God confirming it, but they're good Jewish men who love the Scriptures and they're thinking in their heads, okay, we've been waiting for the Messiah, we've been waiting for the Kingdom, we know... That in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, the disciples are saying, okay, we've seen it, and we've heard it, 
But has the Word of God failed? Have the Scriptures been broken? Because Malachi said that Elijah the prophet must come. And you're here. And Elijah was here, but now he's gone. So help us understand this contradiction. And so Christ verifies the Old Testament prophecy. In verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Christ says, you're right. Malachi did say that. It's true. It's already happened. And then it says, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus spoke of John the Baptist. Malachi was talking about John the Baptist. Prior to the birth of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, the angel of the Lord says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and He will go before Him in power, in, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We studied in Matthew eleven fourteen. Jesus told them, If you are willing, speaking of John the Baptist, He is Elijah who is to come. So it's all coming together. The final issue having been settled, the transfiguration is verified. All of the necessary prophecies have been fulfilled. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. They are eyewitnesses to the coming of the rule of God in Christ. They saw His majesty. They saw Him clothed with glory and honor. They heard the voice from the Heavenly Father. Surely now their faith is stronger than ever. Surely now they're ready to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him to Jerusalem where He will suffer and die. Now how can we receive the encouragement we need as we attempt to and labor towards denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus in a world that says that is foolish, the things that you believe are lies, and if you continue to say them out loud, we will silence you. How can we be encouraged to continue to come to corporate worship when they say, if you show up at that church building, you're going to prison? Or it's going to cost you something. What's going to keep us worshiping? What's going to encourage us to do anything? There were some, uh, some who would say, well, it doesn't matter what we do. We're the church inside and outside the walls. Let's just be the church alone rather than gather together. Let's be the church rather than evangelize. Let's just keep it quiet and, and love people and do nice things for people and not really push the envelope when it comes to the things God's commanded us to do. How can we be encouraged to continue when it actually costs us something. Because if we won't live godly now, when it's easy, we're not going to live godly. And I don't know why we would be fooled to think we will live godly when it actually costs us. So what encouragement do we have in following Jesus? Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Moses saw it, Manoah saw it, Ezekiel saw it, Isaiah saw it, Daniel saw it, Peter, James, and John saw 
the terrifying glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Do we need any more encouragement than that? We're following God. Or we can have a second encouragement that I believe we see in this passage. Jesus is the ultimate aim and purpose of all of redemptive history. Moses and Elijah came to show it. That is, the law and the prophets came together at a moment in time to testify to the fact that Jesus is the central figure. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. In Luke 24, 27, we read a beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Later in that chapter, Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written... In the Old Testament Scriptures, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It had already been written. So again, there's no pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament. We don't read the Bible and say, well, that's Old Testament. Now, if you want to point out a ceremonial law or something that has been fulfilled in Christ and say, well, that was a part of the Old Covenant, that makes sense. But we don't just look at everything in the Old Testament and say, well, that's Old Testament. There is no plan A and plan B. There aren't multiple plans of salvation. There aren't multiple peoples of God. There aren't multiple dispensations of salvation. It all comes to a head in Christ. The Old Testament pointed to Him. The Gospels tell of Him. And the epistles testify to Him. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, Of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Christ is at the center of it all. Now, it it became popular and very cliche several years back to say, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But what does that mean? I would submit that a truly Christ-centered view of history and redemption must of necessity clear the floor for the singular individual, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the beginning and the middle, and the end of all of God's revelation and works and redemption. He's not just the means to our salvation. He's not merely the revelation of God's love toward us. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the active agent in and ultimate recipient of all of creation. He is the first motivating cause of the decree that results in our salvation. He's the primary object of God's love. He is the final climactic end to which all of human history plunges. If God loves you, it's because He loved His Son first. If God blesses you in this life, it's because all of creation belongs to His Son and resounds to the glory of His Son. If God has saved you, it's because you are part of the gift that God has chosen to give to His Son. If you've died to yourself, it's because Jesus died first. If you've been raised to new life, it's because Jesus rose first. If you've been justified, it's because Jesus is righteous. If you've received wisdom from God, it's because you have been given the mind of Christ. If you're seated in heavenly places, it's because Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. If you have victory over sin, it's because Jesus conquered sin at the cross. If you're not afraid of death anymore, it's because Jesus already defeated death in your place. If you're going to be glorified someday, it's because Jesus has already been glorified first. Or as John says, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and, the Hades, death and Hades. He is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the One who was and is and is to come. And when we see the law and the prophets coming together to testify to this, they are saying, this is Him. Everything comes together in Him. Close your eyes, and everything you've always dwelt on may be gone, but you'll have Jesus only, and that's all you need. So knowing this and these truths, can we not rest assured in our self-denial and our cross-bearing discipleship? Would you not give up everything to know Him? Would you not give up anything to understand His glory? Would you not sacrifice everything to see His kingdom take dominion? Would you not take up His Word and study it so that you can know Him? Would you not turn off your TV once in a while and speak to Him? Would you not take just one day off and just worship Him all day? Would you not forsake the world so that you might be conformed to His image? The question is, what is there to lose for the disciples? What's there to lose? Look at, look at what you gain. You gain this King who is God, who is the culmination of all of redemptive history. What is there to lose? So as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, it is with that King that we come to dine. Perhaps as we've studied, you've realized, you know, because I don't study God's Word as much as I should... I don't know this Christ very well. I've not understood His glory enough. I've had a low view of Christ. Well, it's here to His table that we come and seek His grace and we are renewed to know Him more deeply and to follow Him more closely. So as the elements are passed, examine yourself and so partake in a worthy manner.